I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. beginning the end it's a story but that's why i'm here to tell you stories so where to start this is a journey into sound brought to you in living color on wtdr it's happening i can feel it how would you explain it it's beautiful god it's god i see god how do you like that why it's preposterous thank you very much information in the form of energy streams in wonderful out-of-the-box conversation with two of my favorite out-of-the-box people, Bayo Akomalafe and Sophie Strand. You'll find out more about them during the show. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm just always honored when I get to be alongside Bayo. I actually was remembering three years ago being like alone in my little kitchen listening to Bayo talk and just like holding on to his words like they were going to keep me alive. So pretty amazing to be able to share space with him. Hi, bye. My dear sister. Hello. <laughs> if it feels strange that we are having a conversation about new gods in a time of war, in a time of pain and suffering and trauma and loss and weather conditions that are so errant that we no longer know how to predict tomorrow, if it seems queer, or inappropriate 
then you might be working with a strange and equally strange notion of gods. When I think about gods, I don't think about something that is so abstracted that it's of heavenly relevance, but no earthly relevance, right? I'm thinking about something that is as close to us as our own breath, as our own skin. So this is not some philosophical sophistry or play with words and concepts. This is a grounded, situated, and penultimately playful attempt at thinking through the divine and the sacred and how that is already imbricated in the questions, the urgent questions we have about our days, about what it means to be in hope, about losing hope, about losing trust, about losing our lands, about losing our bodies. So this is serious business. And serious business can only be seriously approached playfully. So the times are serious, we have to play. And I'm here with my dear sister to defractively compose and braid new tapestries with you. And we're not looking for resolution or consensus, even though you are one of the foremost theobiologians of our time. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you'd laugh at that one. But I'm just here to weave and co-braid with you, sister, and see what emerges surprisingly from our conversation. So. Thank you, Bio. So I was a medieval studies major in college, and I was fascinated with saints and how they're really tutelary deities of certain places that then get a name. And you go to them with certain issues. You know, there's, you know, if you lose something, you go to, is it St. Anthony? You have an impossible problem. You go to St. Jude. And these are less people and they're more like land beings that sometimes do work, sometimes don't, you know, you mm -hmm. know, in folk tradition, if they don't work, you turn them upside down, you yell at them. <laughs> and for me, I need help quite often. I'm in dire conditions all the time in terms of my body and the way I navigate the world as a skin silhouette of matter. And I don't find that these Christian saints work for me anymore, but I do mm -hmm. find that beings take on a kind of pantheistic relevance for me. And I want to offer one that came to me a mm. couple of days ago. And I've been, I've been having a lot of, my, my spine is not working recently. I've been feeling like kind of like a pasta noodle. Like I can't stand up right, can't really do anything. My body doesn't work. And Deloid Rotifera came to me and said, I have some good news for you. And the good news has no human language attached. And in fact, it doesn't even do doesn't even have sex in the same way that humans do. It is the queen of parthenogenesis and kleptogenesis. So I wanted to offer that as like a starting point. Do you know about Deloid? No. Oh, bio. Here is Deloid. I'm giving Deloid Rodefera to you because she, they have been very helpful. So Deloid has been having asexually reproducing for 80 million years, which in mm. biology is supposed to be actually a very bad approach. And usually asexually producing creatures do it very briefly and then they switch back to sexual reproduction because there's no way to actually create the evolutionary novelty that lets beings adapt to shifting conditions when you're just cloning yourself again and again and again. Right. But Deloid is this tiny little nematode worm, this little like disgusting being that lives in puddles and like septic tanks. It's only parthenogenesis, only reproduces itself. They can't find a male. And they don't understand how it's been around for so long. I mean, it turns out it's even more powerful than a tardigrade. It can withstand more radiation, really? more desiccation. It's just hardy. They found out that the way that it actually persists without having sex in the correct way is by eating shit, literally, and then not digesting that DNA and stealing DNA from fungi, from bacteria, from viruses. So it eats and then incorporates it into its own body. And that's the way it evolves. It doesn't evolve in any of the ways we think we're supposed to. It evolves by process of indigestion. And so mm -hmm. I wanted to offer the deloid as this being, you know, as we're facing, like it can be desiccated without breaking down. So it can be like, in a puddle and then the puddle can dry up and it can last for a million years. Mm. So it has a lot to teach us about drought and heat and about intense conditions and about not being able to find a mate. <laughs> has mm. a lot. And about eating shit as a way to evolve. 
I'm especially attracted to that prospect. Me too. Well, I thought you might be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That critter reminds me that the thematic or the motif of some of the things that I want to share today have to do with breakdowns and eating shit and being in shitty situations and how displacement kind of produces gods, new gods, if you will. Um, so I've been speaking about mispronunciation, Sophie. Yeah. A couple of months ago, I had an interview and this lady invited me to pronounce my name. She was not going to get it wrong. So she said, might I ask how to pronounce your name properly? And I challenged her, you know, part of my politics is to situate myself astride the morality of Euro-American centrism and to not be eaten up by that. And and I, I think it's a gift, not just to my context, but to the contexts that I find myself speaking to sometimes. I, I refuse to pronounce my name properly. I leaned into the mispronunciation and said, you know, my people offer the gift of mispronunciation. I actually made that up in a moment, <laughs> coined it. But the phenomenon is not made up. And the story is we kind of celebrate mispronunciation. We don't shy away from it. We lean into it because it's how we notice God as if for the first time, right? So we we lean into the strange. Our cosmologies, our theogonies are built around errors, errancy, right? Shitty situations, mispronunciations. So I encouraged her to mispronounce my name. This is not some universal template, just a cultural situated approach of a given people and how they meet the world of gift and surprise. And then I started to think about mispronunciation as something that is more than a verbal event, more than a linguistic matter, right? How does the world mispronounce itself? If we were to think beyond words and tongues and voices, how is mispronunciation more than human, more than lingual, more than verbal? And I think if you start to think about displacement and loss, then you come to a place where you realize that the world is constantly shaking and moving and mispronouncing itself, leaning away from the static or the identified or the familiar and constantly seeking other ways of being with itself. And this is where the trickster comes up. But I want to leave it at that before I continue the story as we diffractively compose something we don't know together. This feels like the start This displacement feels like the start or the beginning of an adventure into how the world co-creates new gods and invites us to cultivate gods and goddesses, new archetypes. And this is a challenge. You see, this is a challenge. And this situates our conversation in a very, very alive and vibrant and animated politics of responsivity in challenging times. This is how I feel to enter this conversation with you, sister. I love the idea of mispronunciation as being both macrocosmically and microcosmically bigger than just language. And I was thinking a lot about how evolution mostly works by accident through these glitches that then begin to build a whole new molecular syntax. And so beings only survive in as much that as they can mispronounce themselves, as they right. can let, let themselves be coded incorrectly. And then that incorrect pronunciation then becomes the way they survive. One of the things that, so I have a body that doesn't work. I have genetic connective tissue disease and like my spine is out of alignment. I'm always correcting in incorrect ways. And so recently, you know, people are always trying to come in and telling me how to stand correctly and how to fix my gait and fix my hips so that I don't dislocate and so that I can look more, you know, correct, move more correctly. But I've been thinking lately that human beings are not built to be well or to be correct. They're built to keep moving forward so that they can escape danger <laughs> and to get more food. And so, in fact, if you correct someone and then they feel pain, 
and they suddenly are in the, you know, they're, they're syntactically, physically correct, suddenly they can't move as fast. They can't survive. They can't keep moving forward. So it's this ways that your body mispronounces itself, even in a very skeletal kind of fascial way that helps right. you keep moving. So recently someone corrected me, a very, you know, talented body worker corrected me and it destabilized my entire body. You know, I'm not supposed to hold myself like this, but this is how I keep moving. It's the way I mispronounce my own body that keeps me surviving. And so I've been thinking a lot about how, especially in body work, we think about correcting the body, but sometimes the ways the body has corrected itself are the ways in which it keeps moving. Mm. Human beings are not built to be well. I have to write that down. They're, they're, they're built to keep moving forward. We're really like just meant to just keep it's the It's the ontological, epistemological trap of modern civilization, right? What it wants to create is rectilinear figures, right? And what it wants to propagate is a notion of closure, right? Wellness is closure. What it means to be correct or correctness is represent some idyllic platonic world out there, some transcendent world. And so we're representing that world. This is an escape from imminence. This is an escape from ecology. This is an escape from our bodies and the errancy, the vibrant creative errancy that makes us possible. And so, Sophia, I, I was also thinking about pronunciation as this act of correcting, right? What this person is trying to do. Like, um, Pronunciation would be then this act of cutting through the multidimensionality, the multiplicity, the duplicity, the indeterminacy of things, right? Is to cut through it and enact closure, enact a definition, right? It's the equivalent of reductionism. During the pandemic, for instance, the official understanding was the wisdom of the time and we're still in those times, was that the virus is the enemy, right? And the thing to do is to get rid of the enemy, is to get rid of it. And there's this man in Kerala that built a temple to worship the virus. And he was cancelled, right? He was attacked abroad and in India. People started to say, this is primitive, this is rubbish, we should adopt a very serious approach during this pandemic. And he was of the opinion that if God is everywhere, then God is also this virus. There was this processual, relational, gentle, liminal thinking that was part of his offering, that the virus is God, the virus is furniture, the virus is salvation, the virus is suffering, the virus is pain. Things are many things, right? At the same time, nothing exists by itself. But the act of pronunciation is the act of reducing the world to stability. It's like a wave function collapse, right? From ethics to morality, you know, codes and rules for governing bodies and minds. It's the collapse from chaos to order, from indeterminacy to determinacy, to definitions, to identity. But there are moments when mispronunciation becomes this crack, this trickster's crack that bursts through everything and upsets the established order. And I feel this is when new gods are born, right? Mispronunciation is not just verbal. It's a cosmic act. It's the invitation to the divine. Yes, maybe I'll stop there for now. Oh, I have so many thoughts. I love that. I mean, I also love the idea of like, I'm deathly afraid of rabies and I have been attacked by rabid bats and animals before. And so this is like not conceptual. It's, it's real and lived. And for whatever yeah. reason, it's a phobia of mine. So I started praying to rabies because <laughs> I was like, you obviously want my attention. I have to start making eye contact with you in some way that's not going to be actually getting rabies. <laughs> I have to like start the dialogue before it flips subperceptually into my actual body. So I was just thinking about that in terms of the virus and how when we don't start the dialogue, the dialogue begins in a material incursion. That if we begin mm -hmm. it in this kind of spiritual sense, 
we can perhaps avoid having to physically manifest it so it gets our attention. But what I was thinking actually about is ecotones and about those moments where one ecosystem very dramatically becomes another. And there's this slice between the two, this gradient, this interface that you've talked about interfaces before. I think it's just such an yeah. interesting idea where there's much more biodiversity. There are many more animals and species and types of animals in this brief overlap spot, this tension. The ecotone comes from household and from tension. So it's the mm -hmm. surface tension of two ecosystems not quite participating in each other. And that's where the most life comes about is right in that spot. And so that spot to me is the crack. It's the place where two bodies are interacting in a way that it far exceeds moral categories. That They're creating friction and tension. Maybe they're rubbing the skin off of each other a little bit. It's a mm -hmm. kind of it's a traumatic interface. But that's where the new gods are born, where new birds and new fish often come into being are in these like tidal zones. And I was thinking about this other idea I've been playing with lately. So we have these original cells that were unicellular. And then mm -hmm. at a certain point, multicellularity comes into being. But what would that age feel like to the single cells? Like it must feel deeply traumatic to bump mm -hmm. into someone and to suddenly to never separate. Like what does it feel like for these single selves to suddenly be making these concatenated larger selves permanently? And then I was mm -hmm. thinking about what you were saying in regards to trauma being a territory we're all inhabiting right now. It's, it's right. a place that we're living, not something that we own or can extract from ourselves. It's a place we have to navigate. And yeah. I was thinking, like, what if trauma is the symptom of a moment when selves are becoming something quite different? And what if right. trauma is this interface between bodies that are merging? Right. I mean, I think of trauma as body proofing rituals. Like if you were to go to space, you would need space juice, I don't know, to hold you while you're in space. You need a prop, right? You need some. This is where Bateson, Gregory Bateson shines, you know, bursting through the habituated ways we see the body. That bodies are not just this morphological outline we're used to. Our bodies are diasporic. Our bodies are molecular. Our bodies are tentacular, doing things that escape visibility, right? And that's the invitation here, right? When we think about trauma, we often drive it through the capitalist individual, right? The, the capitalist self that is isolated, that is identifiable, that is some kind of a wave collapse function again. But seen through animist lenses, trauma becomes more than human. It becomes all the things that we are doing. And by we, I don't just mean humans, but how territories take shape, how bodies are reinforced, reinscribed, and put together again and again in place-making rituals of co-compositional politics, right? How we come back together again and again. But most importantly is what is left out, right? Like body-proofing against something. It's like a defense mechanism. Something rushes in and these things have many names. We just spoke about multi multidimensionality, right? A virus is not just simply a virus. An experience is not just simply an experience. I think I've told you many times about, or we've had this conversation, and there's too many conversations to have, my sister, about sitting with a Yoruba Babalao. Uh, a Babalao is a not a shaman, a healer who's a priest. Notions of healing in Yoruba culture have little to do with the medical paradigm that we inherited. You would see a Babalao as some kind of a cosmic lawyer, right? He negotiates your case with the pantheon. Like, what are you guys doing? Come on, this is my brother. Do something about it through the agency of plants and cowries and sonic driving and all of that. You could think of a Babalao as a shaman. Anyway, I sat with seven of them more than a decade ago. And I remember asking my very haughty Western inspired question about diagnostic tools. Here is this clinical psychologist in his suit and tie. And I was asking questions about how do you think about auditory hallucination? Right. 
how do you diagnose it? It came to that question anyway. How do you diagnose it? How do you treat it? What's your opinion on it? What are your, where's your DSM manual? Where's the indigenous version of the DSM? And he was like, why would you want to get rid of those voices in your head? What if that's your grandmother? What if that's your grandfather? What if that's the voice of a God, right? It was shocking to me because it was palpably obvious to him that the world was not neat and tidy that way. That in those places of cracks and openings, there are ancestral energies, there are archetypal longings. And that is a site of destruction, but also creation. It is harmful and risky, but at the same time, the kernel of the yet to come is embedded in those cracks, in those, in those mispronunciations. And I have a video to show. This is a two-minute video of an observation made by some biologists, Sophie, this would interest you, who are studying the embryos of Xenopus, a frog, right, the species. And this lady, Dr. Adams, trained her camera on the embryo, put side by side in a dish. And she went to bed. She had no expectations that she would see anything surprising. And then the next morning, after splicing and putting the video together, she saw something that is baffling the biological community today. Now, if anyone has wanted to see what a crack looks like, I'm about to show you. With some volume too. What we're too. able to do now that was never possible before is combine molecular biology with these understandings of the electrophysiology of what's going on so that we can really control it at the genetic level. I love the, the caption of an electric face. It's a really perfect way to explain what it is that you're seeing in that video. So we're actually able to see where cells are acting as a battery where they're accumulating negative charges. And the amazing part was that those negative charges overlap in areas where those cells are going to become parts of the face. So just cell divisions, lots of activity. There goes the brain, mouth, pharyngeal arches, eye, nose, ear. All of these things are in some way being regulated by a single type of signal. That is just beautiful to me. The findings suggests that what we thought about how cells know what to make is incomplete. And this is a way to sort of finish that story or take a new road for that story. If it holds that these bioelectrical signals are controlling gene expression or the patterns of where genes are expressed, we have a whole new approach to correcting birth defects or preventing them or spotting them before they happen. Plus, we have all these highly specific, beautiful drugs that have been developed in neuroscience or in psychiatry. We have all these drugs that we know work and are safe in humans that we can use to control electrical signals. And so the most exciting thought is that we're, this could be translated into highly specific and powerful medicine to interrupt when normal processes go wrong. Okay. Sophie, you know what that is, right? You're you're a biologist, you know you know I'm what this is. Not a biologist. <laughs> well, I think of you as one. Let me see if I could tell this very briefly the story, interpret that. The story we tell about how cells know how to create eyes and organs of our body is that they're instructed by genetic code right? DNA in our cells, tell them what to do, and they know how to make whatever, the bodies, uh, parts of our bodies that become us. But this observation, prior to cell differentiation, shows something else is at work, right? That crack that zoomed across the embryonic surface was not genetic code. This was not, this was a selfie snap, almost like Petri dish prophecy. Something that was not supposed to be there was caught, you know, predicting where the organs of the frog would emerge, right? It was something, I don't know how to put this. I don't have the language for it, but it, it feels like something, she called it a bioelectric signal. And I've heard people like Karen Barad speak of it as potential, something flashing up something that is not part of the structure there, but a signal 
bursting through and prophesying the organs that will come, right? It almost feels like this is, like, these are cracks. This is how bodies are reconvened. This is how bodies are born. Let me stop there for now before we go elsewhere. We're listening to a conversation between Bioakomalafe and Sophie Strand. Bioakomalafe is the author of The Wilds Beyond These Fences, and Sophie Strand is the author of Love Song to a Blue God and The Flowering Wand, Rewilding the Sacred Masculine. Have you read Terence Deacon bio? Terence who? Terence Deacon, the, the neuroanthropologist. No, I don't, I don't think I have. That's what I'm thinking of. So Terence Deacon says, and I'm really interested in embryogenesis, which is that how omnipotency moves to totipotency then moves to these patterns that shouldn't actually exist. And that DNA is actually one of the most passive parts about our human makeup, that we've hidden the black box of this homuncular process that actually reads it and creates our patterned bodies. For me, I love Terrence Deacon talks about it as an absential, which is there's an absence, just as you know, and I think it's in the I Ching, it talks about how like the thing that draws the wheel into shape is the absence mm-hmm. at the center of it. And it's this absence. It's this absence of our form in our future that sucks us into being. It's this absential, this predictive quality of our shape in the future. Mm. And I like to think of that in a very kind of erotic way, which is it's, mm. it's, it's a yearning that draws, you know, it's the shape in you that has not been filled that draws in matter. But it's the mm. shape. So what I'm interested in is this idea of it's not even just this electric spark that's moving through it. It's not something. Right. No. No. It's it's an absence of something. It's, right. it's it's absence. It's an active absence at the core that draws us into shape. I am always so worried when I listen to things like that from scientists, even though I love their research, because when we have fixed the human race, the human race can no longer evolve. Like we think of ourselves as a climactic species, but we're living in dynamic environments that are shifting that we will need to glitch out and become disabled in order to inhabit. Mm. And so I worry about fixing these bodies that are beginning to experiment Mm. at the very edges of the ecotones of what is supposed to be materially like appropriate. So as someone whose body could be fixed, I wonder if I should be fixed. Mm. Glitches and <laughs> flashing through and bursting out and absence as material and the apophatic theologies and exactly, negative yeah. theologies <laughs> that, that say the void isn't empty. And this is what James Hillman, the archetypal yeah. psychologist, would say that gods, the gods are everywhere. We are swimming in dynamic, animated, tentacular territories. And there is no escaping that. There is no removing ourselves from that. We're always in conversation with these biotheal signals, right? And these signals are, you know, thinking with mispronunciation as a glowing point in our conversation. This flashing through reminds me of the stories that some of my elders tell about the challenges of today and the kinds of moves that we need to make, right? Mm-hmm. We're discussing theogony. We're discussing the emergence of cracks. We're discussing the emergence of new gods. We're discussing their proliferation, their abundance. I know we want to make a link between that and the politics of today, right? We want to say that this is, of course, like I started, this is not just some abstractual game. This is grounded. This is us thinking about how we think. So, Sophie, this story is about Eshu, who is a trickster in the Yoruba pantheon, right? And, you know, the story is told that he embarked upon the voyage, the slave, the middle passage, the transatlantic slave trade. He was on all of those trips, right? He did his best to subvert the attempts by his brother, Ogun, you know, the god of victory and iron. He did his best to try to cut off the insurgency, to chase away the slave masters. Instead, what he did was to invite those ships, which is troubling. It's a moral intervention that is deeply troubling, but issue embodies deception and shape-shifting villainy and all the things that tricksters embody. But there's something about him 
embarking upon that trip that tells me about the kinds of politics we need to convene today. Because I think that voyage, the Middle Passage, was an attempt of making sanctuary. Where making sanctuary is not about keeping people safe, right? That's some idea of sanctuary. But making sanctuary is about protecting something fragile, something what you call the active absence, right? Something so infinitesimally and vanishingly small, but is the voice and the cry of novelty, right? And he embarked upon those trips. I can imagine that upon the embryonic surface of the Atlantic Ocean, there were cracks. These signals flashing through and the gods that were going to be born in the creolized Americas were born through those cracks through Candomblé and Santeria and all the traditions, the Afro-diasporic spiritualities that emerged as a result of that mispronunciation, as a result of that displacement. So I think what we're saying is how displacement and errancy and falling away from the rectilinearity of being corrected actually is, as painful as that might be, is the invitation to cultivate new gods together. Right. A politics that is alive to the cultivation of tardigrades as gods. And this friend of ours, Deloid, as part of a pantheon, an ecological priesthood. Right. A new form of worship. Yes. I've been thinking so much about your thinking about issue. Issue. Mispronounce it. There you go. And <laughs> he doesn't mind. The idea of stowaways and syncretism, and especially in relationship to invasive species. Like, so there's an intense drought in the Hudson Valley right now. And for whatever reason, it's the invasive species that are able to still survive. It's the chicory, the European invasives, the chicory and the purple loosestrife and the mustard greens and the knotweed that can still thrive in this intense heat. And in, they come in the hulls of ships. There are viruses and there are invasive, you know, seaweeds that are on the bottom of cargo ships that do come mm -hmm. along and, you know, get excreted into harbors with wastewater and then take over ecosystems. And we have this very problematically narrow idea of what a climactic ecosystem is where, you know, invasives are not allowed in. But when the ecosystem is shifting, It's those invasives, it's those other gods that need to arrive on the scene and open up the cracks and create new connectivity. So I've been thinking a lot about how in my home right now, all of these shallow rooted trees are falling down because the soil is no longer able to keep them upright with alternating periods of extreme humidity and then aridness. And mm. that these invasive mustard greens have a fungicidal quality where they kill off the mycorrhizal associations of these trees and bring them down. And they can be mm -hmm. seen as being terrible. But what I see them doing is they're being the midwife of this ecosystem. They're deciding mm -hmm. which trees can't be upright anymore. They're bringing them down. They're creating meadows where then suddenly there's more biodiversity. You know, they're midwifing new ecosystems. And so I've been mm -hmm. thinking about these gods, these trickster gods and these invasive species, that they come on the underbelly of those colonizing boats those species arrive and you know the pig this is the best mm. this is i've been mm. praying to pigs so, so do you know that pigs who were brought over by colonizers you're laughing at me because i'm getting so excited about the pigs. i love pigs they're brought over to terraform and destroy the indigenous land stewarding practices to take down the trees but then pigs when they get loose they go wild and they grow tusks And they become undomesticated in two weeks, sometimes less, such that they can never be redomesticated. And it's becoming a huge problem in America and Canada. And they think it's going to be one of the biggest issues in climate change are these roving crowds of pigs that have escaped our terrible capitalistic way of, of farming animals and right. have gone rogue and wild. And they came with the colonizers and now they're suddenly like, you know. Mm. Fighting mm. back. And I love the idea that they go wild so quickly again, that their whole It, morphology this, changes. This is part of your book. This is rewilding. I think about the troubles of our time and I think about this gravitational pull from rectilinearity to the diagonal, right? There is a sense in which 
we're called to worship. And I love that the fugitive position, which is an epistemology of hiding, right? The fugitive does not want to be seen or recognized. The fugitive does not want to stand up and to speak truth to power. The fugitive has to run. The fugitive is the glitch of the plantation, right? And so the fugitive has to bend in some kind of diagonal, erotic conversation with locality, with the ground, with pigs, with viruses, to see things anew, right? And this may be thinking about mispronunciation and embarkation. By the way, I feel that since patterns often repeat themselves, there are new ships that are coming to the shores of modern civilization. And I think we all are being invited, those of us gestating in cities, are being invited to come into this diagonal worship again. We're being called to go on exile. We're being called to embark, right? And this is how to cultivate new gods. It's cracks have emerged, right? And it's it's convening. A crack is a convening of a new form. Like it's a resubjectivization of the body, like a creation event. And we are in creation destruction events at this point in time. And this is the place where we prostrate. Or like Yoruba people would say, we dobale. We fall to the earth. We press our bodies to the ground, right? And so embarkation is exile. It needs exile. For us to try to drag the gods. Sophie, I want to say this, that, that, you know, when we speak about gods, we often think that these are beings in other places, right? Uh, you know, in the supernatural, which is probably the most unfortunate word ever invented, the supernatural, as if the natural were just a province of reality, right? But I think they're everywhere around us, the divine, the sacred, and they often hide in glitches, right? They, they hide in the places, they hide in shadows, they hide in corners, they hide in the places we don't usually go to or linger in. The effort of a politics that is responsive to these times and to the gods that are sprouting through the cracks of these times is a politics that knows how to dance and move and cultivate new postures to hold these gods and their archetypes. You know, the Candomblé's religion, part of the work is possession, right? A god possesses you, right? And a priest who's, you know, just curating that ritual would notice that this is issue or this is Ogun or what species of issue has entered this person today. All right, these are the dance moves you need to do to host this God well. And I think in modernity, we don't know how to host gods, right? Because our postures are carceral, are stuck on this front-facing positionality. So we don't know how to move, right? Our practices are not that animated for us to move from side to side. And this is why the playful epistemologies of cracks invite us to move. We need to know how to cultivate these new archetypes that are showing up or else they show up as all the things that we're witnessing today. This division of politics, this tribalized politics where we can no longer have a conversation is an effect, a symptom of a morality that doesn't know how to do anything anymore. So we need transmoral transgressions a playfulness that allows us to cultivate these divine infiltrations, if you will, possession. I love that. I also love with thinking about the DSM, which is all of the different diagnoses, oh, as being uh-huh, like uh-huh. A, a playbook for all of the positions you yeah, can yeah. take when you <laughs> are possessed. You're like leaping through. You're like, which one should I perform? Which one is the correct mm-hmm. one? Joan of Arc was someone I was fascinated with when I was growing up and then studied in college. We should do a thing on that. <laughs> There's a lot there. I've been thinking of her, she's a great moment of like the psychosis of the pantheistic mind that's only been given a monotheistic mm-hmm. box. Mm-hmm. I love reading her trial where she's talking about all of these different beings. And I sometimes think that what the issue she's experiencing is that she's getting a lot of different directions and she's trying to create one homogenized view of what they're mm-hmm. telling her. But there are a lot of different beings who disagree with each other talking to her. Right, um, right. And she needs to, she doesn't have the tools to be able to host a more interesting conversation because she's only given this monotheistic idea. And she's 
constantly saying like voices, but actually voice, who is it really? And I've been thinking about that we need to learn how to have pantheistic, like pantheistic minds again, to to Uh let those voices in that might have more interesting advice on what positions to hold, how Mm -hmm. to dance inappropriately. Something that was interesting for me was I very severely injured my knee two years ago. I ripped off my kneecap and like I was like basically walking on flat ground and just like it really did feel like something came and just went like this and it ripped my kneecap off. But it grounded me and I couldn't move in the ways that I thought I could. And I ended up just sitting on the ground moving like a sea anemone, just kind of like Mm. just trying to move from like my root which was on the ground. It was like a totally inappropriate way to move. But it was only mm. as I began to move inappropriately because I was kind of grounded that I started mm. to have more interesting ideas. Like I could, I could say that all of the ideas that I've had were accessed by holding positions that were uncomfortable that I would have mm. never ordered off the menu. So how do, we, how do we help each other hold positions that are uncomfortable? That is a vital, centralizing, grounding question. How do we support each other in these times to take those candoblistic shapes, right? The dance, to have carnivalesque arrangements where we move our bodies. And I'm not just talking about dancing in public, which is a beautiful thing to do, um, twerking in public. <laughs> we do that more often. My family keeps on, not just my family here, but my family around the world keeps on inviting me to twerk in public. I'm yet to summon the courage to do that. But by dancing, I mean something that is deeply political, something that is more than just the politics that is premised on critiquing oppressive systems, which we need, right? But something that is supplementary, if you will, an underground politics, a transnational politics that knows how to sniff out what the gods, the more than human, the unspeakable, the unthinkable, that which is not available for analysis is doing, right? What comes to mind now is, you know, that rabbinical story of Moses. This is apocryphal, I think. Stories that were told. (laughs) (laughs) That's another conversation. But um, Moses as a child is, as a beautiful boy, is seated on the laps of the Pharaoh, right? The king. And he's in court when Moses grabs the crown of the king. And the king is livid and the priests are livid. They're saying this is a sign that this boy will take your place. So kill him now. Just let's end him. But some party, some other priests say, well, let's do a test then. We will put your crown in front of him and we will put some, you know, coal, hot burning coal in front of him, which is brighter than a crown and more attractive, I think. If he goes for your crown in that instance, then we should kill him. But if we go for the coal, then we should spare him. So it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. And Moses, being true to his nature, <laughs> I guess, goes for the crown. But it is said in that moment that an angel intercepts and draws his hands to the coal. And so Moses takes the hot burning coal and puts it on his mouth. And this long story is a way for those rabbis to say something that it's in the glitching out. It's in the disability. It's in the dyschronic. It's in the place where we lose our eloquence that God comes in. So he was granted the gift of a lisp in order to be eloquently available for the emancipatory project of freeing the Jews. So... (laughs) I refer to that story because I feel we're at a place where we need to attempt different things now. But the clues are all around us. You said DSM, that's a beautiful reframing of the DSM, right? That's a map. That's a cartography of failure. But that's that's where we want to dance to, right? Um, Fernand Delini, have you heard about him? No. Inspired Deleuze and Gattari, these are French philosophers and psychotherapists and psychiatrists. Fernand Delini gathered a community of autistic nonverbal children and refused to correct them, saw them as wild gods, right? That refused the thesis, the Lacanian psychoanalytic thesis that we are at root verbal creatures. Language is what gives us selfhood, right? He rejected it. And he started this beautiful project of mapping lines 
and mapping lines of flight, right? Mapping the dancing, the wandering lines of the children and thought that these lines, these maps were co-creating together is a map of emancipation. If we have a politics that is devoted not to curing, you know, autistic children or giving them language or imposing on some rectilinearity, but seeing them as altars, which is what my wife often calls my son, an altar, a wild place, right? The object is not cure him or drag him into sanity, you know, gentrified sanity. The object is to worship, to stay in the trouble of his yelps and his screaming, right? If we can do that, if we can convene community around that bonfire, then we might have created a politics of surprise together, which will not guarantee our salvation, but it will shift us closer to those cracks, those unbecoming flashes of possibility. Oh, I love that. I love the idea of, of beings as wild altars. I mean, I'm always struck by our earliest graves of human beings are usually disabled people. And the people who were given the most extraordinary burials were often people who were not normatively shaped or were with the glitches. And so we can see in this, in our history of burials, of ceremonial burials, of creating these altars in the earth, we can see that the glitches were what we did honor. They were where we put our prayers. They were the seeds we put in the ground. Yeah. I also, it's interesting to think about nonverbal. My friend actually composes music from nonverbal children. She says she collaborates with them and then she creates music from them. And I was thinking about how it's a great way of thinking about how we all need each other to create certain kind of communication, that we're all yeah. a prosthesis for someone else. And that if you can do it all on your own, suddenly there's no relationality. There's no world building. It's, you know, my disability is an invitation to become part of a larger body. And the invitation, mm. disability is an invitation to relationship. That, you know, mm. the things that I can't do for myself are ways in which I build community. Because suddenly the people who do those things for me are part of my extended body. It's like the mm. ghost pipe with the fungi under the ground. Like the ghost pipe can't photosynthesize. So it has to create this relationship with the fungi. And it's that opening that creates the whole ecosystem. You know, if we can do everything on our own, if we can speak it all, if we're utterly pronounced correctly, then we, mm. we've become that atomized self. We've become isolated. But to be yes. correct is to be isolated. To be correct is to be isolated. I'm not going to add anything to that, sister. I'm just going to I'm just going to stay with that. We're listening to a conversation between Bio Okomalafe and Sophie Strand. Bio Okomalafe is the author of The Wilds Beyond These Fences, and Sophie Strand is the author of Love Song to a Blue God and The Flowering Wand, Rewilding the Sacred Masculine. Thank you so much, both of you. I was actually struck by um, you talking about children as wild places and as altars. But my father has dementia, and I'm taking care of him now. And I, I think it's both like inspiring to me. And also I'm like, and what about like, I think there's places where doing that becomes more challenging. Mm-hmm. And I think it's one thing to do that with a child. But what about someone who is at the other end? And like listening to you speak, there's so much beauty in these ideas. And yet the challenge of the reality of meeting these uncomfortable places, what I'm hitting is like, whoa, I can't do this alone. I can't do no. this alone. No. If, if I could say something. So I feel poetry is the language of the apocalypse, right? We cannot speak in clear language. It's impossible to be possessed and to speak straightforwardly, right? I reject that thesis. But there's also risk in that. So you might get a sense that things are all flowery and and stuff. But no, I struggle. And, and I will tell a story that is not flattering to me. It's about my son. My son, as you might have heard, is on the spectrum. We don't use that language. I'm a psychologist, but we don't use that language in my family. But he's on the spectrum. He's five years old. He's not nonverbal. He's verbal, but he speaks in tongues. Let me put it that way. He's very prophetic. We call him a wild prophet. When he was three or four, 
we're walking in a shopping mall and I'm walking along with him. My wife is a few feet ahead and she's walking with our daughter, Alethea. And something upsets Kea, my son. Something disrupts his peace and he falls to the ground and he's screaming. And I don't know how to do it, right? Like you said, we need each other. Sophie said it beautifully. To be pronounced correctly is to be isolated, right? We need each other to hold these massive energies. But I couldn't do it in that moment. In spite of my politics and my work and my theory-making journeys, I could not be in that moment with my son, right? And I tried to get him back together again, which is what the work of the psychotherapist is. I tried to shrink the situation. I tried to pull him to sanity. Get yourself together, man, you know? Anyway, my wife, EJ, realized that I needed mothering. I needed fathering. I needed someone else in that moment. So she comes to me and she says very strictly but compassionately, walk away. (laughs) So I walked away. And she did the thing that Sophie and I are weaving together. She fell to the ground as an act of worship. And in front of everyone, right, hundreds of people walking around. This is India. She fell to the ground next to him, right? While people wondered what was happening here and wondered if they should call the cops, right? She just stayed next to him. It didn't solve anything. I mean, he noticed she was there and he, there was something about being there silently in that space of trouble, in that place of black noise. There was an invitation for him to, you know, to notice and to come back into himself. But no correcting, like Sophie said, it, was, it wasn't a, an attempt to fix his posture. It was a falling down, just a meeting the universe halfway, if you will. And that is a lesson that lives in my bones today. So we will need a politics that will do the kind of work that doesn't repeat a toxic cycle that moves symptoms around and pretending that we're actually doing some bone shifting work. That kind of politics will need company. We will need beautiful, festive assemblages where we can be with each other and stay with that fragile thing that wants to be born through the screams of a wild God. Right. So I cannot speak to the specificity of your situation since I don't know any more details. But I think that this is the invitation of our times to stay in the hull of the slave ship. Right. Instead of, you know, propagating an activism that just brings us to the surface of the slave ship, but leaves us on the damn ship. Right. I was thinking about how, Bio, you've written in very helpful ways about the silence and about not leaping from one story to another. You know, I think about how when an electron leaps orbits, you can't tell where it is. It emits light by not being able to be located. And another example I feel is really helpful for me is that you know, in a hermit crab, they don't produce their own shells. They steal them from other beings or they're left around. So when they outgrow a shell, they'll usually find another one that's not a, the correct fit. So they'll exit their old shell and wait next to the incorrectly sized shell. And slowly over time, many different hermit crabs will all come together who all don't quite fit in each other's shells. And they'll sit in their fleshy, exposed, inappropriate bodies outside of stories outside of shells for a long time, risking being eaten, risking being dispersed. And it's that time, it's like Moses in the wilderness. Like if you're decolonizing from your Egyptian patriarchy, you can't immediately go to the promised land. You need time in the wilderness. You need time between mm. shells. Like you need, you need time between orbits. So you can't tell the new story from the positionality of the old story. You need mm. to let yourself get fleshy and weird between shells. You need to be in the Mm. desert and eat the mana, you know, Mm. for a long time. And I think, unfortunately, or fortunately, you know, Moses never makes it to the promised land. Many of us will never make it to the shell, but we're part of the process in between the two. And it's that interstitial space. It's the crack where we have to live. That There is no story coming that we can see. We just right. have to we have to sit outside our shelves for a while together and keep company in that space. You know, there's something about that in cave art, just to quickly mention this. So you know about the I think they're called cowrie trees. 
in New Zealand and they found rings. Of course, the trees told stories about what might have happened 42,000 years ago. And there's some comedic strands to this because the scientists named this event that happened 42,000 years ago, named it after the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which proposes <laughs> that 42 is the answer to everything, right? Well, 42,000 years ago, there was this polar shift, a magnetic polar shift that was like a crack, was like the Holy Spirit breathing upon the embryonic ocean, and everything went awry. This fires okay. everywhere, auroras in places they're not supposed to be in. So it kind of baked the entire planet. They noticed that this coincided, this event coincided with the descent, the going under of the proto-human population that lived in those times. They went under and it coincided with the eruption of cave art, which some interpret as a religious event, as a co-creation of new gods, right? It was like a descending, a moving into the wilderness, right? And I think that you're exactly right that sometimes the new or what we think is the new is the old masquerading as a <laughs> resolution, right? Oh, let's, this is a blueprint. This is how we get there. No, slowing down in times of urgency is not reducing speed. It's being acted upon by the glitch. It's being met by a God that says, no, you shall not move further. You sit here, you stay here and I will shapeshift you. And I will break your bones as a blessing. <laughs> and I will give you a new name. Then you will be able to see differently. Then you'll be able to feel. Then you will know that with Lakoche is not just a pathogen, is a delicacy. Then you'll be able to know and feel and touch the world differently. But first you fall to the ground and stay there in the blackness. Hello, what a glorious conversation. Thank you so much. Um, this conversation reminds me of a, a creation story, the Yoruban creation story of Obatala, uh, the moment when he, you know, drinks the palm wine, gets intoxicated, and begins to create humans out of the mud, <laughs> right? They, they're lost an ear, they don't have an, a leg. This idea of mispronouncing the human being or disability or a creation that doesn't look correct is so fascinating to me and I used to teach this story in a comparative mm. religion class and we mm. look at all of these different creation stories and then there was this one that my students found completely confounding you know a god who makes a mistake right yes. and, and so I would love to hear your thoughts on this God who gets intoxicated and creates in the glitch of that intoxication. I would love to hear what you might have to say. Thank you. <laughs> Sophie, you go for it. I mean, I could say something, but please, I, I would like you to. I don't know. I would say that the God, the God is what exists between the deity and the intoxication and the fermentation that I, I think about how, you know, Dionysus doesn't exist as a god until you have the mm. accidentally inoculated beehives that then ferment spontaneously. And then you have to create an explanation for how the intoxication came about. And so then you come to the god. And so it, which comes first? Is it the intoxication? Is it the fermented? Is it the palm wine? Or is it the god for the palm wine? Which comes first? So for me, that's, you know, I've been thinking a lot about how people say there are no fungal gods, there are no microbial gods. And I want to say, no, they're the oldest gods. We just didn't have microscopes to see them. So we said that they mm. were, you know, they, they had these anthropomorphized shapes. But what they were really mm -hmm. doing is they were these polyphonic shimmering spores of yeast that we were trying mm -hmm. to understand and worship. So that's a kind of diagonal slant way of not answering your question. But yeah, <laughs> that's, that's my response. Yeah, I'd love to hear what Bio has to say. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll just quickly say that the intoxication plays a role in the eventual story of the transatlantic slave trade. Like Eshu basically intoxicates his brother so that the damn thing could happen, right? He gives his brother palm wine, and yet that's a creation event. And I think this is how the Yoruba people whose name is also an accident. There's so many errant things about <laughs> Yoruba cosmology and the pantheon. I think the fascination with intoxication is the 
invitation for us to see ourselves as besides ourselves, that creation is not the production of unique and separate and separable bodies. It's the invitation for us to lose our way, is to fall away from ourselves. That's why the intoxicated is the producer of creation or the one that gives birth to cracks and new beginnings. So, um, yes, these are stories that are deep in my bone and it's good to hear them again from a new voice. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was Bayo Akumalafe and Sophie Strand. Bayo Akumalafe is the author of The Wilds Beyond These Fences, and Sophie Strand is the author of Love Song to a Blue God and The Flowering Wand, Rewilding the Sacred Masculine. Like a star, my vice, I opened my eyes to take a peek to find that I was by the sea, gazing with tranquility. Just then, when the hurdy gurdy man came singing songs of love, then when the hurdy gurdy man came singing songs of love, and that's it for this magical mystery tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. Histories of ages past Unenlightened shadows cast Down through all eternity The crying of humanity Tis then when the hurdy-gurdy man Comes singing songs of love Then when the hurdy-gurdy man Comes singing songs of love Hurdy-gurdy-gurdy-gurdy-gurdy-gurdy-gurdy-gurdy-gurdy-gurdy-gurdy-gurdy-gurdy-gurdy-gurdy-gurdy-gurdy-gurdy-gurdy-gurdy